0: This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Dr. Gary Martin, who's a former detective from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office in the Department of Violent Crimes. Um, He's also the founder and vice president of NOPE, uh, the, excuse me, the NOPE Task Force, which is the Narcotics Overdose Prevention and Education Task Force here in Boca Raton. Dr. Martin, welcome. Thank you,
2: thank you for having me.
1: Okay, so how long did you work? investigating overdose deaths for the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office and Violent Crimes Division.
2: I was a uh, law enforcement officer here in Palm Beach County, Florida for 28 years. Uh, 3 years of uh, I was a undercover narcotics agent in the, working for the City of Boca Raton Police Department. I moved to the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office and for 20 of the 25 years that I was employed by the Palm Beach County Sheriff's, I investigated overdose deaths on a, I would say, on a pretty daily basis um, as I was a member of the Homicide Unit.
1: So over the course of these last 10 years in particular, Mm -hmm. as we've experienced this opioid epidemic Describe what that was like here and what you've seen.
2: Yeah. um, I guess about the the turn of the century uh, is when we in law enforcement recognized that something different was occurring in our community. We were uh, quite literally in in the homicide unit going uh, sometimes from one overdose death to another um, on a a pretty regular basis. I think – we averaged it out, and at one point in our history, we had we were experiencing overdose fatality every 29 hours just in Palm Beach County alone. It was more than a number of suicides we were investigating, more than a number of homicides, more than a number of car crash fatalities. And we recognized that something else was going on, and when we, um, we kind of drilled down a little bit, what we came to understand was there was uh, essentially – a wave of uh, opiates that sort of came into our community. Um, and at the time, it was by way of physicians prescribing an, uh, a pers- specific drug, and that was oxycodone. Oxycodone really took a toll on our community. Um, it, uh, there was a lot of media attention uh, brought to bear on what was at the time described as pill mills. Um, we were, unfortunately, Broward County, Palm Beach County were, uh, in, by some accounts, the kind of headquarters of, in the country of this phenomenon. And um, you may have seen in the news a lot people uh, the videos of people being lined out the door of these pain management clinics where, I would say, unethical physicians were not only prescribing, but also dispensing oxycodone in great quantities. And, um, what you learn about oxycodone is that it is a, uh, a highly addictive opiate. Um, it draws people into that slippery slope of physical dependence very quickly. And, um, we learned that people were coming from all over the nation, actually, um, to come here, to get their prescription, to get their prescription filled, and then going back to their home states to uh, to not only sell, but and I know that uh, some states experienced some pretty significant overdose uh, epidemics as a result of drugs that were tracked back to Palm Beach County.
1: Hmm. Wow, and I'm sure Ohio was one of those states. It absolutely Our, was. Yeah, was one of the hardest hit. So, uh, Dr. Martin, you also helped found Narcotics Overdose Prevention and Education mm-hmm. in uh, Palm Beach County. Can you tell us how that came about, and tell us a little bit about that program? That's, a, that's I, I was excited sure. to hear about
2: that. Sure, it's um, forgive me. It's a bit of a long story. I'll try to make it as concise as no. possible.
1: Fantastic, please.
2: So, um, our back in as I was mentioned, it was like the turn of the century where we were just. Uh, in law enforcement were struggling with this epidemic. And it seemed like only we in law enforcement and the fire department and uh, the emergency room physicians were aware that this was going on. Um, So um, our sheriff uh, at the time, uh, Rick Bradshaw, who's still the sheriff now, and his uh, second in command, Mike Gogger, um, recognized that what we in law enforcement were doing just did not seem to be helping. We were quite honestly, just after-the-fact reporters on, on these tragedies. And the families, the next of kin, the friends of the, the folks who died were, were just struggling with uh, how could this happen, what's the next step, who's going to be arrested for the death. And so the traditional way that law enforcement looked at these cases um, was that they were accidental deaths, that the, that the person knew the risks, and um, there was not a great deal of investigative scrutiny dedicated to these cases, um, which definitely escalated the frustration of the families. So as I mentioned, the sheriff sort of said, this isn't working, let's do something different. And so within the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, we um, designed what was termed the overdose suppression project. the overdose suppression project had three separate but related components it had a a law enforcement component and um, what i mean by that is that um, every overdose death that occurred within the county and remember these were hundreds of these happening every year every single overdose death was reviewed um, by a a team of trained investigators um, to make certain that there were no criminal um, liabilities that we missed so in other words even after the case was investigated the case was closed I would get the, the police officers report go through it line by line to look where was every lead run to ground was every possible relevant witness interview to see if was there some criminal um, conspiracy was there some commonality within cases um, so we really look real closely at each one of these cases. It is a very time-consuming um, event, and so if a, what type
1: of crime, if I could jump sure, in here, sure. doctor, what, what type of crime were you looking for? Was it uh, the, the, you know associated with the victim, so to speak, and uh, you know that they perpetrated, uh-huh. uh, or are we talking about
2: some way that we can track back to the dealer? So I would say both. Um, we weren't interested at all in um, in. the the criminal action, really, of the victim. But we were very interested in any commonalities within cases. So if one person was at the scene of four different overdose fatalities, and, and unlikely that they would wait for law enforcement. But if we were able to uncover such a a pattern. We would certainly want to know more about that person, mm-hmm. and so within the Narcotics Bureau at the Sheriff's Office, certain um, vice agents, narcotics agents, were trained and specifically um, worked with us in the Overdose Suppression Project. So that if we came across some kind of um, lead path, we would turn it over to them to investigate further. So what what would occur? would be that not necessarily someone would be arrested as a result of the overdose death directly, but what was more likely to occur is the intelligence information that we gathered about the people at the scene and the circumstances of the death, that that would lead to fresh investigations that went off on different paths and may result in the rest of physicians who were um, illegally prescribing pharmacists who were occasionally selling, um, these powerful opiates out their back door. Um, we, we, you know, we developed some information that resulted in some pretty significant cases. The rare case, but it did occur was, um, um and some of these cases are still pending where physicians were literally charged with, um, second degree murder as a result of, there's a Florida law that pertains to um, this particular set of circumstances. So but the, the, the manpower to put that kind of case together is is phenomenal um, because there are such significant thresholds and medical privacy and all those issues that you might imagine that would be a challenge to bringing at um, such a court case were uh, were pretty elevated, and unfortunately, families and not to get off on a side issue, but families of lost that lost loved ones, they didn't really recognize how hard those were. They saw that the Michael Jackson case resulted in a doctor getting charged, if you remember, um, and they wanted to know why, you know, their son or daughter who got an oxycodone prescription from Doctor Smith down the road, how come Doctor Smith isn't in jail because their son is dead, um, or how come the heroin dealer who originally got their son addicted, how um, and their son died later on? Um, how come that heroin dealer um, isn't in jail? Those are s- the, the manpower and resources to try to put together those cases is a, it's a one in a I hate to say it, but are like a one in a thousand shot. To get something like that. So it, it, it's all the pieces have to fall together. And it's an unusual set of circumstances. And when we saw it, we took advantage of it because what our hope was is that if we can, in essence, give this message to the, the medical community that, hey, we're watching, um, that it might, um, in, the, in the perfect world, prevent some future physician from just haphazardly writing out oxycodone prescriptions or Valium prescriptions or Xanax prescriptions without doing their their due diligence for um, uh, trying to determine what the, the patient actually needs.
1: So your research
2: um and, and this program
1: really resulted in a conviction for one or more physicians out there
2: due to over prescribing practices. Yes. Is that right? That's accurate. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, but to get back to your original question, <laughs> I, I told you it was a long story okay. um, about nope. So that was the law enforcement component of the overdose suppression project. The second portion of the overdose suppression project had to do with research. We wanted to uh, understand this phenomenon, um, this epidemic, if you will, from a um, scientific perspective, quasi scientific, if you will. Um, so not only was I we um, looking at each and every overdose death that occurred in our community, we were gathering data as a, as a result. So we were pulling out data points from each case that happened so that we could keep track and find out, okay, this is a percentage of these people. This is a percentage here. Um, these are the p- folks that were the, the at greatest risk. We, conduct, we came up with a, an overdose risk profile for our community based on the data that we um, uncovered, and we found, and maybe we'll talk about this later, or some of the information we found helped us steer our efforts a little bit uh, better. We wanted to, to focus what we were doing as best we can based on real data on in Palm Beach County. So the second portion, as I mentioned, was research. And the, the last component of the overdose suppression project had to do with public awareness and public education. That's where the NOPE task force Comes in. As you mentioned, um, the word NOPE is an acronym. It stands for Narcotics Overdose Prevention and Education. And it's really, you know, as we recognize that very few people, other than impacted families, then treatment center professionals, then emergency room physicians, law enforcement, and paramedics, were the only ones that recognized that, you know, one person was dying just about every day in our community from this. It just never made the news. It just was a silent epidemic, if you will. What we realized is that in order to prevent future and to hot and to sort of sensitize people that might be on that path, families that might be on that path to tragedy, we needed to get the word out. And so our sheriff made some public service announcements and we joined with um, a group of, they were already starting to form of family members who had already lost loved ones to this. And um, we, we teamed up with law enforcement folks in Palm Beach County. We teamed up with this group of family members. We teamed up with some treatment center folks. Um, some, and the schools, we saw the schools as the best venue for trying to get this word out. And so we created um, uh, informational presentations um, based on the population so we went to high school and middle schools we had a specific presentation there was an emotional component it was kind of a multimodal presentation where we had a video we had a speaker who had lost someone then we would have a law enforcement officer who would come and talk about the uh, the the typical crime uh, death scene and then we would sometimes um, we would have a treatment center professional who would come and talk about these are the warning signs and um, even in high school and middle school, what we found is that after these presentations um, in schools, uh, that students would come forward. It was very emotionally impactful. Students would come and say, look, this is what's going on in my house. The things you describe are what I'm worried about my big brother. What can I do? And so we would been able to connect them with their own guidance counselor and try to, you know, whatever the services were, we would try to channel our efforts in that direction kind of anecdotal uh, uh, situations where we were hoping we were making a difference right off the bat but it's hard to say what else you know what other tragedies we might have prevented so we went into um, middle schools high schools we developed a separate program for universities and we do we've done it at, uh, just about every unit we've got a grant and we went to just about every university in the state of Florida um, to give these presentations uh, we developed a presentation for treatment center clients. Those clients that were already in treatment, we would, were allowed to go in and address them, not so much on uh, the addiction matter, um, because we, our hope was that uh, their own uh, therapists and um, groups would address that. But we were talking specifically on this issue of how to keep yourself from dying of overdose. Um, we went into the jails and we talked to inmates about this because we, uh, our research kind of exposed the fact that it was very likely that someone who had overdosed and died had experienced at least one period of incarceration. So we were going there and talking to them. We went to law enforcement, chiefs of police. Um, we developed presentations, quite honestly, for just about any group that would allow us to come in and talk to them about this issue. Um, nope is still active. What year was that? Uh, oh, it's, it's still going on. Yeah, that um, you developed this, the presentations
1: and went out and started. Doing uh,
2: this. I want to say it was. Uh, I want to say two thousand four, two thousand five is where it started. It started mm-hmm. small mm-hmm. and then began to expand as more people, you know, heard about it and more people were impacted by it. They would say, "Well, you know, like if you went on Google and you typed overdose death Palm Beach County, Nope would probably pop up." And then how to get a presentation scheduled. And um, so um, it it has expanded ever since. And we've, quite honestly, I think there's um, chapters of NOPE in three or four states. Um, and they're kind of self-sufficient. We're the headquarters here in Palm Beach County. But um, we it's almost like a franchise thing uh, where we provide them with the materials. Um, it's a very... I would say organized presentation there's a training manual that goes with each and every presentation um, so if you're going to talk to law enforcement here's the presentation and you've got a you if I remember correctly you have to witness two presentations um, go through a training an eight-hour training before we'll allow you to participate in it in a training to get up on stage because it's not for everyone not everyone can get up in front of a group and talk um, so uh NOPE has been very active specifically in Palm Beach County because it started. And, I mean, it's quite literally hundreds of thousands of, college, of high school students and middle school students have seen our presentation. Um, and, again, it's uh, kind of spiraling out, hopefully.
1: So now we're somewhere in the neighborhood of, oh, I'll call it, uh, 13, 14 years down the road mm-hmm. that you've been doing this. Yes. So do you have any measure of its effectiveness?
2: Yeah, um, great question. Um, because you can't get any kind of grants without some kind of demonstration, some kind of research that uh, illustrates your effectiveness as a program. And actually, Lynn University here where we're at, um, our graduate psychology program has been um, putting together an application, doing the efficacy research to try to get, uh, gosh, I'll, it'll, they're gonna kill me, but I can't remember the the acronym that, that fits this kind of prevention program, that allows us to, to, you know, expand. Um, but um, there's published research on, on NOPE. Um, there is, uh, what, the way it kind of works is it's, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, the ultimate, the, the grand prize is to demonstrate that you change behavior. But it's so difficult in prevention work to try to demonstrate that you changed anyone's behavior. So, but what we are able to demonstrate is we have changed people's level of awareness and people's perceptions and attitudes about certain issues. And there are certain key issues, like would you be willing to call nine one one if you were at the scene of an overdose? They, you know, when they come in, we we uh, we ask them that question. That after the presentation and the materials. We asked them that same question, and we're able to demonstrate that we have impacted their attitudes in, the, in a positive direction. I'm very confident that we're going to get this, this designation that we've been, cert- we've been hoping to get, um, which will allow us to take that next step forward.
1: Okay. Now I want to talk just, this leads us to another point, and that is um, you work very hard to get a good Samaritan law passed. And that was passed in 2012?
2: Yeah, it was uh, earlier than 2012 is when we finally got the ultimate thumbs up. But it can't, was actually put into practice in October of 2012 here in Florida.
1: Okay. So um, tell us about that process to get sure. that put into place and and the difference that that's made since 2012.
2: Sure. Um, so um, one of the frustrations was... Uh, and we heard this quite frequently from law enforcement officers investigating these these tragedies was that when they would go to the scene and talk to the witnesses that the witnesses um, would frequently recall the events leading up to the the overdose. And so the and recognize that the um, victim, if you will, was um, in some distress, and so the the natural question from the detective to that witness was, well, why didn't someone call nine one one? If you recognize this person was in distress, why didn't you call nine one one? And the commonplace response was, we were just. Too scared that we were going to get arrested, that our overdosing friend was going to get arrested, that the cops were going to come in, take all this dramatic action. And, you know, now we're then we're in the law enforcement. Um, we're in the um, criminal justice system. And so gonna get our we, friend
1: in trouble. Exactly and, right.
2: Yeah. Um, and so what we did, and this was almost a cliche, in fact, it's one of the quotes is we would put up put our friend in bed and hope he would sleep it off. And that, as you know, that is just the last place we want to put somebody is in bed, um, not supervised, not monitored. and those were very commonplace experience. And actually, um, part of our research was going back to witnesses and asking three very pertinent questions. It's, it was kind of a structured interview. And it was, um, was anyone in earshot at the time of the overdose death? Um, present, in other words. So, Within earshot was ear the, shot. Question. Well, the question. Interesting question. Why, why earshot? Because we wanted to know if the person, the victim, would have um, been asking for help, struggling for uh, breath, or uh, making some, some unusual sound. Could somebody have heard that? Typical of an overdose. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, snoring, especially really loud snoring. Maybe. In fact, we have that data point as well. How many mm-hmm. people reported to us that someone heard loud, unusual snoring on the occasion of the overdose death? And what, what we learned about was someone present, was someone in earshop, was it was over half the time. I think it was 50, 51% of the time. And that's definitely an underestimate because... Um, Remembering, we were only these are only the people that were willing to speak with us and willing to uh, wait around for the police. So these at least fifty one percent of the time, people would be willing to tell the law enforcement officer, "I was there the night that the person overdosed." The second question we asked following that one was, "Were you aware on that occasion that the person who died was using drugs?" And um, again. Sort of this idea that you were there, you knew something was going on. Um, were you aware that this person was using drugs? And and uh, let's see, third. I don't have my glasses. Thirty-five <laughs> percent of the. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, others uh, aware
1: of fatal drug use. Yes, yeah. others were aware of 48%. fatal drug use. 48 percent.
2: 48 percent of the time, someone was willing to tell us that yes, on the night Gary died of an overdose, I knew he was using drugs. Hmm. So now we have people that are present. Hmm. We have people who are know that um, someone is using drugs, and the third one is even more. Uh, Difficult for media. Uh, others, others recognized victim's distress yeah. so in 35%. A third, uh, over a third of the time, mm-hmm. someone would tell us, and remember this is post, post-death, post that on the night Gary was uh, using drugs, the night that he died, I knew something was wrong. I knew he was there struggling for breath. He had passed out and he, we couldn't wake him up. He was acting bizarre. He was complaining of tingling or lips turning blue, something unusual. We recognize someone's distress. So we put all that together and we sort of came to the conclusion that there's almost this myth out there that people die in overdose in isolation. And really, it's very common for someone to die from an overdose where other people know that that there's a problem. And again, that the the, so we asked that question: Why didn't you call 911? You know what to do in a medical crisis. Why didn't you do? Why didn't you do it this time? And universally, the answer is: um, We were afraid of law enforcement. We didn't want to get ourselves in trouble. We didn't want to get our friend in trouble. So we we put him in bed to sleep it off. So I sort of liken that to our experience in university. A lot of universities, and Lynn is one of them. Lynn University is one of them. Has established knowing this kind of. I'm a anecdotally, we've known this for years in university settings, that we want um, our students to be willing to get help if one of their fellow students you know, overdoses on alcohol, overdoses on whatever. So we have enacted, and many universities have this as well, an amnesty policy. So an amnesty policy essentially means you don't have to worry about getting kicked out of school if you're willing, if you're brave enough to try to get help for someone not only do you get sort of amnesty, the person who gets help, but your friend who's you know overdosing on alcohol or whatever is also not going to suffer a, uh, a conduct action. So don't worry about getting kicked out of school because that's what they all told us. Mm. I didn't get help because I was afraid I would get kicked out of school. Don't worry about that. And that's a message that I were, were certain to communicate to every student who comes to, to class here. Um, and so we sort of say, is there some way that we can take that that kind of amnesty notion and broaden it to the larger community. And that was the kind of genesis of the, the Florida's Good Samaritan Act. Um, there was some initial pushback from law enforcement and law enforcement uh, was the, the, the argument was, well, if we grant people amnesty criminal amnesty under these circumstances, someone might, commit a murder and then call the 911 and say uh, someone's dead here and think that they may get some kind of amnesty for that. So I mean the 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 thinking wasn't seemed to come together. Fetched. It seemed very far fetched. So we pushed past that. And eventually our fraternal order police and our police benevolent association once we explained it to them they were on board completely because they were also the ones that were witnessing this this notion of well we were just we put them in bed to sleep it off we didn't want to call cops and so recognizing that the police Benevolent association the FOP uh, I'm pretty sure it's it's those two organizations went and testified to our Florida legislature we supported it I'm almost 100% sure that Florida police chiefs um, supported it um, and uh, so we enacted this particular law. It's on the second page of that, and it really deals with if you're willing to pick up the phone, call nine one one in a drug-related medical crisis, you don't have to worry about getting charged with drug with a drug offense.
1: Any caveats on that?
2: Um, it's specific to drug offenses. Any so, specific drugs, or just no, drug offense? Drug offenses, okay. So um, that's a good question. Uh, One of the concerns was, so I'm a cop and I go to this scene and as part of the natural process, I run someone and find out they have a, a warrant for robbery. Do they get amnesty? No, they don't. They only get amnesty for the drug charges that would potentially be brought forward. What happens if they find a bunch of drugs in the house? Yeah, it's it's possession really is what you won't be charged with. So the cops, um, will take the drugs, they'll have it destroyed, but you will not be charged with possession. It's written right into the law.
1: You yeah. can't be. So no
2: matter how much you have. Well, I, I wouldn't say no matter how much you have, if we went to somewhere where there was, you know, large Kilo kilos whatever, yeah. and trafficking amounts, mm-hmm. um, I don't know that that would apply Because it talks specifically to possession. Okay. Um, but keep in mind, and this was kind of a, another one of these myths out there, um, as I mentioned that, uh, I think I mentioned, or may have already mentioned this, that uh, people have this myth that if there's an overdose, the cops come in and arrest everybody. And when we look back at the data, it was like 2.7% of the time that there was an overdose death was anyone arrested. So there's this gap of perception and reality, and people are dying in that gap so we pushed hard for it um it's it's like any prevention at, uh, component it's really hard to demonstrate how effective it is but intuition would suggest that it is um, i know that people have called as a result because i've spoken to them um, because unfortunately they may have called too late and so there was a death And so I ended up talking to them as a result, and they said, Yeah, I knew about it. I didn't care. I didn't think I, I didn't have to worry about getting arrested. So I called 911 anyway. And so to me, that's sort of a checkbox in the, you know what, this may have, it didn't make a a positive impact in this particular case because the person still passed away. But how many others is it where the person knows about this law, makes that phone call, the paramedics come, administer naloxone, the person is saved, and that's one more life that uh, is out there that can, in the future, get treatment yeah. and maybe make it through this this very difficult time. That's tremendous. That's uh, that's great. And, and getting passage without having any
1: caveats uh, attached to it is tremendous. Now, Ohio recently passed a, a Good Samaritan law with a, a number of immunity exceptions. Yeah. Um, I think you probably read the summary that I sent over to you I did, right there. Thank you. Okay. So can you comment on the level of effectiveness that you would expect that law would have if it were passed here in Florida back, you know, in 2012 or whenever when you passed yours, if if instead of that law that you passed, it was the one that we passed in Ohio. And I, I realized that, you know. Different state, different oh, sure. circumstances, Absolutely. and everything yeah. else. But still, we've got some caveats that are attached to the thing that I can't wrap my head around. So help me.
2: Yeah. Um, I guess I fall down in the same camp as you, and, and but my reasoning is very simple. The more elements of the law that this Good Samaritan, the more complicated it seems, the more law enforcement focused it seems... To me, the less likely people are to use it. If they have any hesitation at all, they're gonna think about it. If if you're at the scene and you have any concern about being arrested, is this my third time calling, or you know, what am I gonna have to do afterwards? I'm
1: just gonna leave. Let me jump through those caveats. I should I should share those for our listening audience here. So the caveats in the uh, Good Samaritan law that was passed in Ohio, signed by the governor earlier this uh, this summer, um, is it limits the number of times that people can get help. People only receive immunity for the first two times that they call. It also uh, requires medical providers to give patient information to law enforcement. And finally, It requires that the person that overdosed, that the 911 call was made on behalf of, that they get mandatory treatment screening within 30 days or they face arrest. So those are the three, what I call caveats. Sure.
2: Now, so um, again, I, I, I appreciate the objectives of the caveat. But I think it works against the idea that some person that's in that medical crisis is going to make the decision that we want them to make. And that is, what's the, the simplest course of action? Pick up the phone and call 911. Don't worry about anything else. You're trying to save a life. And like with any medical crisis, time is of the essence. If this is my third, and, and you consider that, I, I'm not sure I understand the the. The portion about the third time because these, you know, these in these kind of peer groups run together, unfortunately. And so I might be at one and see someone overdose and pick up the phone, call 911, and the person gets saved. The second one, I might do the same thing. Do I I might be at another one? And I would certainly want that person not to have to worry about: am I gonna get arrested? Is it not, is the immunity or uh the good samaritan law not going to apply to me it just seems to me like we're trying to mix two things that uh i see how they go together but they for for prevention for life saving they need to be separate they need to have the in my opinion this good samaritan law needs wherever it is implemented needs to be as clean and simple as possible the message that needs to communicate to the people that are likely to be present at the scene of an overdose is if someone overdoses, pick up the phone, don't worry about getting arrested. It's just that simple. That's sort of the way it happens on our university campus. If we had caveats and we had conditions for when immunity applies, I don't think university students would take advantage of it because the simpler course of action is just, uh, I'm leaving. Um, I'm, I'm out of here and good luck to you. Um, sure. Or I'm just not going to call anybody. I'm going to hope that my friend does okay and put them in bed and hope they sleep it off. Yeah. So uh,
1: I want to, You've investigated many, many different overdose situations, and um, in my son's case, um, there was no one else around, and everything was the the whole. Uh, room was pretty much clean of any evidence whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I understand that this is kind of a typical scenario, I guess. So um, can you kind of describe a typical um, overdose scenario that you've investigated where, you know, you come in and and the scene and everything and, Mm -hmm. and how
2: you put it together? Sure. Um, so my experience would be that although, um, when the police or paramedics eventually got there, the place was devoid of evidence and appeared clean. My experience not, and not knowing anything other than what you just told me is that other people were probably present and took whatever they thought was relevant and left. And I don't know how the call eventually came in, um, but it was the very rare occasion where someone, as I, I mentioned from the, the literal data uh, search that we did, um, it was a rare occasion where someone just died in isolation by themselves somewhere, no one else around, no one else knew what they were doing. Um, it did occur. Um, it was generally with homeless folks that we would find in a camp somewhere. Um, but people who lost their lives in a, in a house, usually there were others that, again, were there. They saw what happened, panicked, may have taken the time to um, collect whatever they thought was relevant evidence. Sometimes collect what they thought was valuable, and then left. And then it sort of left to the um, responding law enforcement officers to try to put together that that you know last few minutes who was there. On some occasions. Um, it still occurs. I know uh, someone would die in a house that didn't that didn't live there, and um, they would take the person who had deceased rather than call nine one one, rather than doing all the things that you know that good citizens do. They put the person in the trunk of the car, drive them out to west west of county where it's all suburban, throw the person on the side of the road, and drive away. And I mean, those were heartbreaking discoveries you know someone and you know people would think well that means it's a it's a murder you know you find a, a dead person on the side of the road and it was not the case it was murder. it was more likely than not those were overdose deaths that happened somewhere else that they brought the person there but the typical scene is you get there um, there's a uh, the, there's a discoverer present whoever the discoverer is Um, usually the discoverer has already notified, um, some representative from the family. Um, law enforcement arrives, um, the paramedics arrives in response to a 911 call. Um, once they determine that, uh, the person can't be revived, um, they're left in place and, um, the paramedics leave, the initial first responders leave and they, sort of um, maintain the integrity of the death scene for someone like me, the, the crime scene investigator and the detective. The Detective comes, gets initial information, and then um, they conduct sort of a canva- uh, survey of the inside to sort of see where things lay. Remember the purpose of this, this uh, detective coming there is to determine whether type of crim- any type of criminal activity contribute to the death, and that's again very rare that any kind of criminal literal criminal activity gets attributed to the to the person's death. Um, so they can they speak with the family members. The typical again sort of going back to your question of the typical case. Typical case is we learn that the person has um, a history of uh, substance abuse. Maybe they had uh, previous overdoses before. The family was generally aware of the the high risk nature of the of the decedent's lifestyle, and was very concerned. Had sort of exhausted themselves uh, in trying to help and support, and it wasn't unusual where family members would come, and it was heartbreaking to me as a parent and. The the family would say the treatment center told us to let them fall, let them reach their bottom their bottom, and unfortunately, sometimes and I I know, I know I'm speaking to a grief grief stricken father. Sometimes the bottom is below where we ever want them to go. Um, so um, so then uh, the for again the typical scene is the medical examiner would come. Um, conduct a physical examination of the decedent looking for any signs of traumatic injury, you know, were they shot, stabbed, uh, blunt trauma to the head. In these cases, you rarely see anything of that nature. They would collect the decedent, bring them to the medical examiner. That's where the autopsy takes place. And that's where the, um, the, they remove the tissue and fluid samples.
1: So is the autopsy is that always a requirement? Does that always happen in an overdose situation? Yes. Period. That's a state requirement. That's a Florida law. Florida law.
2: Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I don't know about Ohio, but I know it's a Florida law. Right. Um, and so then, unfortunately, um, the whole in the the detective and the, the first responding officer conduct um, sort of put together their initial findings. And then it's just the nature of these cases that the case almost goes into a period of suspension for 90 days. And the reason for that suspension, as unfortunate as it is, is we're waiting for the toxicology results to come back. And there's only a a small number of certified toxicology facilities across the nation, and they're just overwhelmed. so unless it's really unusual circumstances, it takes a while to come back. And this is such a frustrating time for family members and Mm -hmm. they're calling every day. And uh, if there was some way, magic um, way to make speed up that process, it would just, I think reduce so much anxiety out there. Um, But there isn't. Um, You do need that.
1: You do need those answers as a a family. Um, But it's really confirming what you know in the back of your mind. I mean, it's, you know, if, if you've, then, you know, in the battle with uh, your loved one for long enough,
2: you pretty much you put two and two together. Yeah, it's it's a sad way to put it. But uh, I think in the back, some people aren't ready to move that from the back part of their brain Mm -hmm. to the front part until they see the document. And even then, some of them, when the toxicology eventually does come back, they want to talk about, um, well, somebody must have put it in her drink. Somebody must have injected her. And even though she may have had a history of overdoses before, in fact, we did some, we thought it was interesting research uh, on our group of 304 closed cases to find out that uh, 26%, 26 26.6% of the people who made it into our sample, um, 26% of them, if you think about it, there's 304 of them, These are people that we were able to determine they had suffered at least one previous non-fatal overdose requiring hospitalization. So it was just, and that was something that even me that, uh, I I guess I should have known this, but when I really saw that, that one out of four, over one out of four of these tragedies, that person who died of an overdose, they wouldn't be uh, in my database if they didn't, they had already had at least one occasion, and some of them had multiple occasions, where they had been transported to the hospital because they had suffered an overdose. To me, if that just speaks to how powerful um, this addiction is, because think about it from uh, you know you and me re- 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 rational folks that if I got that close to death that you know I had to go to the emergency room and have them revive me, if that's not a strong enough motivator for me to go and do whatever it takes to get off that. You know, whatever it is I'm taking, but it wasn't for those one out of four. Because it's a chronic disease. It absolutely is, and it's bigger than they are. And that's I think that's the part that we as a society haven't come to terms with. We still want to talk about willpower and weakness, not recognizing that there's a, you know, from the research I've seen, there's a genetic predisposition that goes along with this and opiates specifically to me in you know our, our our research on on opiates and the combining of opiates with sedatives or alcohol puts someone at such high risk but opiates themselves are just treacherous because there're so many reasons for a physician legitimate reasons good physicians to prescribe an opiate for acute or chronic pain but that solves a temporary problem but it might create a much larger one and it's sort of like is it worth it that's the conversation i have with physicians it do you know if it's worth it to this person do you know their genetic history do they know that do you know that their fraternal uncle died of a drug overdose and suffered with addiction no you don't so the idea that you're gonna offer up 60 hydrocodone as for a toothache not recognizing what, that, what path you might put that poor person on because the, the genetic predisposition and the, that euphoric feeling that comes along with it, not recognizing that you know in our society we've got so much anxiety and so much depression and that opiates bring with them a side effect of anti-depression and anti-anxiety. So it, there's no doubt about it, opiates make a person feel better. So in our society where there are people are struggling with, uh, especially anxiety, um, I know that if I put this in my mouth, swallow it down 20 minutes later, I'm going to feel better. People don't want to have that uncomfortable feeling of anxiety in their stomach or I'm nervous about this or I'm nervous about that. They Once they recognize that it's a relatively simple process to put that in their mouth, swallow it down, um, it puts them on that path to physical dependence physical dependence to tolerance, tolerance to, unfortunately, for some addiction.
1: Yeah. So with all of the opioid overdose death investigations that you've completed, um, you've probably learned some lessons to pass along to some families on how they might be able to avoid that same fate for their loved ones. Mm -hmm. You've shared some of them Mm -hmm. as we've gone along. What others can you bring out for our listeners?
2: Um, I, I guess that when I get asked this question, the, f- the, the first thing that always comes to mind is if you're suspicious, trust your instincts. Trust your intuition that um, whoever it is you're concerned about might not be telling you the, the truth. And so if you're suspicious, it might be the time where you in, I hesitate to say this um, in a free society, but you as a a caring person for a son or a daughter or a brother or sister or a husband or wife, it's the time for you to start um, looking for why you feel that way. Look inside yourself for what it is is it body language is it some piece of of something that could be paraphernalia that you found is it is it the the change in the people that your son or daughter is hanging out with is it um, a significant shift in their performance at work at school what are they spending more time by themselves now is are there is there on occasions do you notice this different uh, level of consciousness? Um, Are they not anxious in a position now where you used to know that, gosh, I I know that used to make him really nervous to go to a party or give a presentation or whatever it is. Try to evaluate it for yourself um, because your gut tells you a lot. Your mind, your eyes are always taking in information and um, your senses are putting it in the back of your mind. Evaluate why it is you feel that way and think that way. And then once you come to some understanding of that, get the clarification from this person. And if you either go one of two ways, either the person says, here's my explanation for this, this, and this that you've just pointed out. And you're saying, you know what? I feel better now. Let me or jump in. Or the other side yeah. is, gosh, now I feel even more. And let's talk about why I feel that way.
1: So let me jump in there because addicts are great at deception. They're masters. Absolutely. So you're a parent and you've known this person, your loved one, their entire lives. You brought them into this world. They would never lie to you. You want to believe them. You've got to. You do. How do you break through that though and get real about it?
2: Yeah. Um, the way you get real about it is to pay attention to the world and see that what the consequence of not making that, not confronting that, not evaluating whatever it is that making you feel that way. And we're talking about what the consequences, the consequences of this mistake and uh, the consequence of this. I mean, it's a relatively minor mistake if you think about it in the grand scheme thing to put a. Some pills in your mouth and swallow them down, but the consequence of that mistake can be so severe. It's like you could run a stop sign a hundred times and nothing ever happens—a relatively minor traffic mistake. But the one time that there's a car coming, and you, it just magnifies it. You've got to sort of look at it that way. You need to know as a parent. You, as a parent, you need to be able to come to terms with whatever it is that makes you uh, feel that way. When I say come to terms with, I mean, you need to, all the the tumblers have to fall into place. And if you don't feel that way, then I always recommend go get them, get someone evaluated by a professional. This is when you go, you say, okay, I smelled marijuana on you two days in a row. You say it's nothing. I need to, for me to feel good about it you're going to have to go to a professional drug treatment center and get evaluated.
1: So you're thinking about these things as a parent, your suspicions are up. Um, so comment on not invading
2: your loved one's privacy. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a great question. I get it from, from parents, especially in high school. You know, what, what do I do about it? So the way I sort of look at it is like this. If if I came across, um, I've got a, high, a, a son and just graduated high school. So if I came across um, a pack of cigarettes hidden, if I came across some marijuana seeds, if I came across some you know, beer bottle caps from my son and he's not home, what would I do? That's the question that's posed to me. What I would do is I would wait till my son comes home. We're going to sit down. We're gonna have a very serious conversation about the rules of the house, the law, the the consequences of this apparent misbehavior. I wanna want some explanation. If I think it's necessary, we'll take another step. However, if what I found is a different chemical, if I find heroin, if I found oxycodone, if I find cocaine, if I find any of those other drugs that are associated with um, overdose, I see that as a whole different matter. I see that as a 911 kind of discovery. 911, I mean, is it's an emergency, and we know what to do in an emergency is we consult consult professionals. We get the help we need right away. We don't wait. We make we are decisive in an, in an emergency. So I'm not going to wait till my son comes home. I'm going to go to wherever it is in the world my son is. And I'm going to grab him and we're going to go from where where he is. So I don't care if it's school, it's church, it's lacrosse, wherever it is. We're going to go to a walk-in clinic, his pediatrician, or um, an emergency room. And he's going to take a drug test. He's going to take a blood test and a urine test. I'm going to find out whether any of that stuff is in his system. If it is, the next step is a drug treatment center to be evaluated. Now when I say drug treatment center, I don't mean I'm going to go in and sign him in. I'm going to say he needs to meet with a professional assessment. He needs to be assessed. Again, because the consequence of making that mistake is so significant. Again, and I, and you know people f- will push back and say, "Well, you know, marijuana is the gateway to those other drugs." I sure. get that. And it's being legalized across the that. country. I get all that. But you're not going to die the next time you marijuana. You're not going to smoke it and fall over dead. The next time you use cocaine and Valium, you might go to sleep and never wake up. Or the next time you use oxycodone, or the next time you use um, fentanyl or heroin or whatever it is. I see those as completely different paths. Um, One may lead to the other, but I have to know if I find those, and there's a list of those really high-risk drugs, if if I discover that, or I even if I suspect those, I'm going to take some significant action to um, to get to find out. And I'm not going to rely on what my son s- tells me. I just can't. Mm-hmm. Now that may be well. I trust, and I get that from parents. I trust my son. I you know I, I'll just ask him. I'll tell him, you know what the high risks are, and I'll trust him to tell me the truth. I get that. I trust my kids too. But this is such a It's not an issue of trust anymore. Once we get into this level, and I say this level, I'm talking about those high-risk drugs. It is as we as we discussed before. It is bigger than they are. It is almost, and I, it's almost like the drug is, um, in a, in essence, telling them what to say. And you're right; they are such. They get to be such strong manipulators, especially as they go down that path. Because they learn from others, they learn what to expect, they learn how they learn how to prepare for questions. That's why, as much as I, you know, don't necessarily support just random drug tests, wherever if I find something, and I tell parents this, you find something that's in that category of high-risk drugs, the next step should be a drug and alcohol, a drug test. It needs to be blood test, blood test, and urine test. So <clears throat>
1: When you find something, no matter where the kids are, you find something, you figure it out, maybe in their room, drop everything. It's an emergency right then. Absolutely. Go get them. Yes. Take them. Have them tested. Yes. Both blood and urine. Yes. If it comes up positive, either one, next step, go to a treatment center. And get them assessed. Not necessarily put them in, but get them assessed.
2: Absolutely. You need a professional to handle this then. That's what it tells you. Mm -hmm. To me, is if they have any of those high-risk drugs in their system, it is as much as you love them as a parent and want to keep them away from that unfortunate stigma, it is bigger than they are. You've got to get a professional involved. You wouldn't go, if you thought they had cancer, you wouldn't try to solve it yourself. This is this is the way I look at it. it. Is if they had a heart problem, wouldn't treat have you know treat it yourself? That's where I see this. It's an emergency; it needs to be addressed immediately.
1: By treating it as a five-alarm fire, so to speak, you're demonstrating also your love and your compassion for them ultimately, and making a statement in terms of that's perhaps a wake-up call if you catch them early enough. Absolutely agree with you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And they may battle you at that moment when they come out the other end of it if God forbid they are on that path um you'll they'll owe you their life yeah.
1: so um that's really really good that's uh, I haven't heard that put that way before and um what other key piece of advice would you have for families Let's talk about families that actually, you know, do have an opioid addict that uh, they're, they're, you know, with them there in the trenches with their fight. What other advice would you have there, Gary?
2: Um, I guess what I, and this is, it's, it's almost uh, heart. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost brutal for me to say this. Um, but I, I, I say it anyway, um, when someone is going through a period of, uh, sobriety after, so what we're talking about is, is someone who has been addicted to one of these high risk chemicals. So now they're going through it with their family and they're going through a period of sobriety. Let's say they've gone through detox to me. And I've, the, the research kind of bears this out. This is, and sometimes this is when parents start to relax. You go, oh, thank the Lord, we made it through this. This initial period after um, uh, after s- uh, sobriety is when overdose risk really escalates. Because what do I, and we know the research is pretty clear that part of addiction and the nature of addiction is there's going to be relapses. I don't wish it on anybody, but that's just the nature of this disease. Um, Unfortunately, what happens is in these cases, uh, heroin is a good example. Oxycodone, all the powerful opiates. Um, when a person relapses, their desire and is to go back to the level of use that they were at the t- at the last point of before they went into um, sobriety. So, if I'm taking, you know. Uh, five 80 milligram oxycodones a day before I go into my parents, um, put me into treatment. I go through detox. I go through, let's say three months of sobriety. And for whatever reason, whatever the trigger is, no, uh, no one can predict, but today's the day it's my birthday. My girlfriend broke up with me, whatever it is, I'm going to, today's the day I give up on my sobriety and that's just the nature of this disease. I go back to 580 milligram oxycodone. I'm going to die of an overdose. I've survived that before because my body has built up the tolerance to take it. My tolerance is depleted. And that's one of the reasons we go and we talk to prisoners is because while they're in, while they're in jail, they're, they go through a period of, of tolerance. And when they come out, unfortunately they want to go back to the same level of abuse that they were and their body's not set up for it anymore and they it's it's just so sad because what i hear from family members is he was doing so well it was uh, he was you know his on his three months he just got his three month chip he was doing so well and unfortunately um he didn't ease back into it he went back you know, with foot on the foot on the accelerator, and his body physiologically, he's not set up for it anymore. We had a person, quite literally, who, um, not to give you boring police stories, but he died on the way home from jail. His girlfriend met him, picked him up from jail. He was in, he was an oxycodone addict, and on the way home to celebrate him coming home. She brought him some oxycodone. He ground it up, snorted it in the car, and died before he got home. And my conversation with her was, tell me about this. What happened? And she, she never confessed to bringing it, but she said that she saw him take the pills. And she says, I have seen him many times take more than that. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why he, why he overdosed this time. Not recognizing that once tolerance is depleted, you have to kind of build it up again.
1: Yeah. And that once again speaks to the power of the disease. Absolutely. Because at that point, I'm sure he's been incarcerated for long enough and odds are very, very high that his it was out of his system yeah. physically. Oh, yeah. But the brain it stays you know, your brain isn't free of that
2: for many, many, many weeks. I'm told more than 35 weeks. Oh, yeah. It takes a while. I mean, some drugs more than others, depending on how they cross the blood they vary or not. But, but absolutely, for some drugs, it stays with you. And some drugs, quite honestly, change you forever, change your neurochemistry forever so that you always have that kind of predisposition in the background. So whereas some people, depending on their genetic makeup, may be able to come and I hesitate to say this, but you know, become an addict and then go back to let's, let's say an alcoholic and then go, you know, come through the treatment and then be able to drink every now and then. I'm a believer that, that people can develop um, reasonable drinking even if there are alcoholics. Some people absolutely cannot. Their genetic makeup has been changed. And they can't. And one drink leads to 10 drinks, which leads to puts them right back in the path. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Wow. This has uh, really been uh, just so you've offered so much insight. Um, I want to jump back for just a second to make sure that we covered everything as far as your research is concerned. Uh-huh. If I could get a couple of copies of oh, that, absolutely, that, would be, sure. that would be great, uh-huh. Gary. But we, we went through some points. I don't think we covered everything in your graphs there. Yeah. So if there, uh, let me put it a little differently. Sure. If, if there's anything else from your research that you feel would be uh, very particularly important and relevant for our listening audience here, please.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, you can have all this, we shared it with the uh, several times with the uh, National Drug Abuse, uh, Prescription Drug Abuse Summit. And My focus of my research, remember, um, when we were doing this, um, prescription drugs were the, um, the, the, the focus of all the deaths, quite honestly. Heroin was a component, but very small component, it was usually in combination with some other drug. Mm. But now heroin has, as, as, um, as you know, um, sort of made this uh, explosion across the country. And, and nobody, was, nobody in our field really, was really surprised about this because what we did was um, we sort of clamped down on the prescription drugs um, through law changes. We, we really, um, here specifically in Florida, we ran off the pill mills. But inventory dried up. It it exactly did, and but we all kind of predicted that the what we've done is we've we we have this um, population of opiate addicts out there, and if we think that if we turned off the oxycodone that they're gonna give up on it, it, again it's bigger than they are. They're gonna be drawn to whatever it is that's gonna you know make them feel better, Um, and unfortunately the the drug, the illicit drug world filled the void with heroin. And so now that heroin um, potency is so has reached such levels that you can snort it. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, before heroin was it kind of had this stigma, uh, that kept folks from, uh, giving it a one or a, a try because it was associated with the needle. Um, But now that it's potent enough that you can snort it, you can smoke it, you can, I mean, people take it in in pill form now. Um, People are willing to do that. And heroin is a particularly treacherous drug because not only do you not know what's in it, um, but it is a potent, potent opiate. And, um, you know, it just draws people to that slippery slope. I always refer to Opiates is that slippery slope where the, the first couple times, uh, my, it, it's interesting. Um, I think people are kind of, and someday there'll be some research that sort of, I think, bears this out, that people are set up genetically to either find uh, opiates, make them nauseous. And like my wife, for example, is a person who, if she takes a, a Vicodin from the dentist and she, she got so nauseous. She would never want it. anything she'll go through any kind of pain, she'll take mm-hmm. aspirin. but other people have a different experience. I don't know if it's genetic or what where they get this warm euphoric part of their brain and it is so reinforcing. and all opiates have that quality, that euphoria and sedative. It draws them in and it's such a slippery slope. The first couple of times you take it, my knee hurt, my knee hurt, my knee hurt. And then you find that you're looking for reasons that your knee hurt. And then your knee doesn't hurt anymore, but you're looking for reasons to take that drug. And so the responsible physician has turned the faucet off on you, hopefully. But that doesn't mean you can't go out into the community and meet that need um, through. And now, quite honestly, um, heroin, fentanyl are, are some pretty significant and potent um, ways of doing just that. Carfentanil just... Yeah. Amount and you've, you've had it.
1: We it, it, a rash of 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 overdose deaths from that up in the Akron area just happened. Oh, I didn't know in, that. In July, yeah. Or there was uh, just an incredible over two hundred overdoses. Wow. In, in July, and um, there was uh, well, let's see. I think twenty four deaths just July alone
2: in mm-hmm. Akron, which you know,
1: not a huge population there.
2: I mean, and what? is it well known? I mean, I mean, I know you know about it because of what you do, but is it well known within the population of, of Akron that there's this high risk drug out there that people are. It is. OK. And
1: so the weird thing about the addict, I'll call it, community, those that are addicted to opioids in mm-hmm. particular, is it seems that they're drawn to the most potent drug that they can possibly find. It's bees to honey. Yeah, and it's, it's another one of these things about the disease, which is so contrary to you and I in our thought process. Yeah. Um, if we learn that there's something that people are dying from,
2: we're going to stay away. Yeah.
1: They do just the opposite.
2: We had a fentanyl-heroin combination. and You talk to people who know people that died from it, but then those people were out seeking it. It's almost like the challenge. And as sad as that is, there's this myth that there that they can somehow, by finding the right most potent drug, get back to that first or second experience that they had, where their body was completely devoid of any opiate experience. And they got that, again, I keep going back to that warm, euphoric feeling. Um, that they can take on the world, and nothing bothers them, and they just keep out. And you know, it's it's sad. Chasing the dragon. Chasing the dragon. There you go. Um, just some more. Just a little bit of uh, uh, information about how we gather data, because some people are very concerned with you know how data is gathered. So, um, as I mentioned earlier on, um, I was fortunate in that my position in law enforcement. I was getting every single overdose death that occurred in Palm Beach County. I was getting the reports, and so what I was doing after we, you know, we scrutinized as much as possible, I was reaching out to the family members. Uh, I was, you know, um, before they came to me, I was reaching out to them, no matter where they were in Palm Beach County, and somewhere all over the, the nation, obviously, because their their loved one died here, but they weren't here, um, and. For 304 of those, I was able to ha- conduct a structured interview. Some were face-to-face, some were by Skype, some were only on the phone. But there was a very structured interview process that we went through um, to ask these, and that's so that's where this this data that I keep referring to comes from. So. Um, and this was when, again, Gary. Uh, it was uh, from 2010 to 2000. I want to say 13. I don't have that right okay. in front of me. Uh, okay. Um, but I can certainly get you that. Yeah. no, um, oh, that's good enough. Yeah. But it was 304 cases. Not everybody responded, obviously. Um, in that time period, there was over a thousand overdose deaths. But these are the people that were willing to talk to us. Um, so I guess it, one of the things I wanted to to, to the surprising discoveries, I guess, are the ones I wanted to talk a little bit about if I have the time. Um, we discovered that 43% of the people who died from overdose um, had at least one professional treatment experience before. Hmm. So that just goes, and when I talk to, to families about this, I guess it goes, goes, to, goes back to the idea that if you think getting them into the treatment is, whew, this problem is over. It doesn't necessarily mean that. For some people, that's great. It's 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 puts them on a completely different path. But it may be the case that they're going to have to go through repeated treatment episodes. So forty three percent. That's a, a pretty significant number. Um, we talked. I talked a little bit about the non fatal previous non fatal overdoses. Yep. Twenty six percent. Yeah. Uh, and I'll send you this. Uh, um, and you and I talked a little bit about the unusual snoring. As far as, as, far as families, um, I would suggest to families that any unusual sounding snoring is kind of a warning sign that your loved one may be going through an overdose. And it's it, kind of anecdotally is how it came to our attention. I mean, why would you ask this question? Um, but we did. We asked in, in the structured interview, did did anybody uh, report unusual snoring? And sometimes it's written right in the police report. Um, we just kept hearing it. We just kept hearing that that just the only thing about him last night that I remember is he was, you know, the snoring was crazy louder. It sounded a little bit different, or he never snored before, but tonight he was. So um, we asked the um, the medical examiner, what would what would be an explanation for that? And he, what he told us was that um, under these circumstances, where someone has become so anesthetized that their breathing is impacted, that the palate of their mouth actually starts to drop down. That the muscle tone in their the roof of their mouth starts to um, I don't know I don't know what what the medical phrase is, but it it hangs down so that as they're breathing. Um, you hear this different sound and he agreed he said it should be a warning sign to anybody who thinks that their um, their loved one is, uh, struggles with addiction that that should be a warning sign. wake them up find out how they're doing ask them questions do what you have to do but although in our research it was only 17 percent, remember this is i i would say this is a way underestimate because this is just people that were willing to talk to us mm. i guess the, the only other thing um that I would want to make sure people know because it's so so definitive in all the research on overdose death is that it's drugs in combination that, that um, most typically play a role in an overdose death. Rarely, it does occur, but rarely does someone die with just one drug in their system. Um, it's, it's much more likely, um, especially in our research, that someone dies... Um, with some combination of drugs, even in relatively small quantities. So it's not always this. This person took this massive amount of just one drug. It's uh, and for for us, um, for quite some time, there was this kind of triad of um, fatal drug use, and that was alcohol mixed with oxycodone mixed with Xanax. Those three, for some reason, and the medical examiner will explain to you um, why those particular three. They all um, depressed respiration, and most people die from overdose as a as a result of um, respiratory um, arrest. But for some reason, it's even that the the point it was that even in relatively small quantities, um, someone can die if they have that right kind of combination in their system. And here's the part that, um, as, I, as I think I mentioned before, uh, people don't realize that you may have been able to mix those three beers, three oxycodones, and three bars two days ago. And you went to sleep and you don't realize that you nearly bumped your head on that lethal threshold, right? You might have bumped your head, but you didn't cross over. But because two days later you were out playing in the yard, you were out exercising so your body chemistry is different, your your electrolytes are different, you got less fluid in your tissues. You take that same exact combination, that same exact dose of those three drugs and it's just enough to push you over into the lethal level. People are just shocked by, well, uh, you know, I know he did this before and nothing happened. You don't know how close he got last
1: time. So, um so that close. I mean, people think in terms of tolerance, like we were talking earlier about jail, you get, you know, you're clean for a long time and then and then your tolerance is way down and boom, you know, you go back to using the same. So now you're talking about a time span of a few a day or two.
2: Absolutely. It, it all depends on blood chemistry hmm. and, and your physiology. So, again, I worked all day in the yard mm-hmm. um, and I am just I was absolutely exhausted the fluids from my body so now the water level in my system is much less so the drug concentration of that same dose is much higher not much higher but enough higher that it pushes me over into that lethal threshold and again it's a it's a silent death it really is it's not like people are struggling and it's it's respiratory failure.
1: So, Gary, your program is pursuing accreditation. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes, um, the the NOPE task force, and uh, as I mentioned, their educational efforts and their advocacy efforts have been pursuing uh, NREP uh, accreditation. It, NREP is a kind of an offshoot of SAMSHA. And it's, it's an acronym that stands for National Registry of Evidence-Based Programs and Practices. Once we are able to obtain this, um, this praiseworthy uh, certification, it allows us uh, greater access to federal funding and even local and state grants.
1: Outstanding. So when do you expect certification?
2: Uh, we, the or what's app- your goal, I should. That's uh, probably a fair question, yeah. isn't it? Our uh, fingers are crossed. Um, we have uh, finished the application. We've finished the research. Um, we are, as I understand, submitting the package sometime within the next two months.
1: Terrific. Wow. Yeah. Well, Gary, this has been so informative today. I, I, I again, want to thank you so much. Um so, do you have any anything else? Any last thoughts to share with our listeners uh, about how to make a difference in the fight against the opioid epidemic?
2: Yeah, um, I. In, it is. It's a. It's the nature of prevention work that you you kind of never know what you do that might save someone, um, but. Unfortunately, it's it's not just really evident. I saved this person. I saved that person by doing this, but my advice to everyone is try to raise awareness for this issue. If you really recognize how many people across this nation are losing their lives to um, unintentional drug overdose, um, it's shocking. Do research on this. Do look. On, go to the CDC website. Um, go to the NOPE Task Force website. In it. In If you're not already aware, it will raise your level of awareness to these issues so that your antenna can be up. And so when you hear someone at your, you know, talking about their kid who is getting his wisdom teeth and his, you know, his dentist prescribed him 60 Vicodin for the pain, maybe it's you that goes over and talks to that parent and says, hey, nothing for nothing but that just kind of gives me some concern. And here's some resources and leave it at that or turn them to have them call me. I'm, I'm I mean, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm generally pretty happy to, to talk with folks about this just because I'm a big believer in the, the more people that are aware of the things that I am aware and you're aware and the law enforcement sees, the, the more we can impact this. This, I mean, the CDC calls it an epidemic. I've been calling it an epidemic for years. It just hasn't been out there where people have seen it. It's not. It, I mean, if we were losing this many people every day to to a terrorist activity, we would all be up in arms, and we'd all it would be all over the discussion in in politics. But it's not. It's one person here, one person there, one person there, and then you couple that with. The stigma that goes along with it, and uh, the, some folks are just, oh, I'm not, gonna, I'm not willing to talk about it. Um, it's unfortunate that that stigma has come along with addiction, but we need to shake it. Shake that stigma and look at it for what it is. It's a disease. These people didn't, don't want to be in the situation they're at. They just need help to get out of it. And we're a country of people that are willing to do that kind of thing and help people. Let's help them.
1: Mm-hmm. Very powerful. Thanks, Gary. Absolutely. We've been talking today with Dr. Gary Martin, former detective with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office in the Violent Crimes and Homicide Division. Also, he's the founder and vice president of the NOPE Task Force. That's the Narcotics Overdose Prevention and Education Task Force. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast presentation.